WCNC Charlotte, this is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. Coming up, the hidden toll of this pandemic, people losing their homes. In Charlotte, nearly a thousand evictions in the last few months of 2020. These are folks that are falling between the cracks despite what is a moratorium on evictions. We'll speak to an expert who tells us what can be done to stop what is an unfolding crisis. And later we're asking, where's the money? Making sure federal stimulus money gets into neighborhoods that often get overlooked. But first, making Charlotte a little more inclusive for folks to live in. It could soon join several cities and towns across North Carolina, taking steps in the last few weeks to protect the LGBTQ citizens. Why the sudden move? HB2. Two letters, one number, one law that garnered tons of controversy five years ago. Charlotte tried to protect gay, lesbian, transgender neighbors. State lawmakers in Raleigh stopped them. What ensued was a messy fight that led to corporate boycotts here in North Carolina and more. Now the provision that stopped Charlotte and other cities from offering those protections expired. So is North Carolina now a more inclusive place? Joining me today, Kendra Johnson, Director of Equality North Carolina. Kendra, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, by my count, we've got uh, Carborough, Chapel Hill, Hillsborough, Durham, Greensboro, Orange County, all passing some non-discrimination ordinances in the, in the last month or so. Um, a lot of folks here in our area wondering uh, when Mecklenburg or Charlotte are gonna be next. And I know Mecklenburg County has passed a resolution that doesn't really have any teeth in it. Charlotte, the city, uh, of course, knows this topic all too well and has talked about it. Um, how optimistic the, that your organization and others can help get these non-discrimination ordinances passes, passed in other cities? Yeah, we're really here as a, uh, to provide the information and to offer assistance. It's up to the cities uh, and the elected officials and the residents of those towns to take the measures that uh, they feel are appropriate to protect uh, multiple classes, including LGBTQ folks. Um, I can tell you that, I, you know, we're not in a hurry for folks to pass it. We want them to pass something that is um, really something that will uh, be meaningful and will have a direct impact on the lives of uh, the individuals who are most marginalized. I know that Charlotte and Mecklenburg are in discussions. We've talked um, with some of the elected officials there and there's a groundswell of community support for measures and we'll be ready and willing to celebrate um, when the city and the county takes those steps. I can remember back several years ago, I was covering city council, and this was actually before the HB2 fight. And I had um, a city council member say to me that he, he just didn't believe that gay folks or trans folks were, were discriminated against. For folks in the audience who, who, who think that and might not know a gay person or trans person, what would you say to them? I mean, I think that is a really common um, standpoint of people who don't experience um, don't experience discrimination. And just because it doesn't happen to you doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But I can tell you that every single month, sometimes multiple times in a month, I, folks reach out to me looking for assistance because they have been fired from their job because of how they present their sexual orientation or their gender identity. There are folks who are not, uh, who are being kicked out of their homes uh, because their landlord takes issue with who they are, who they love. And, you know, the numbers don't lie. Um, last year, we had the highest 
um, number of deaths of black and brown trans women in the United States. It almost doubled last year, um, violent assassinations. So uh, anyone who says that needs to do more research, they need to talk to the community. They need to talk to their constituents to understand the realities of other people's lives. If you've been in North Carolina long at all, you, you are familiar with the fight that was HB2 uh, a few years ago uh, that effectively stopped cities, municipalities, counties from enacting these non-discrimination ordinances up until uh, December, just a couple months ago. I want to put up, this is from uh, the Charlotte Observer editorial uh, back on the 15th of January. And it says, quote, a spokesperson for the Senate leader, Phil Berger, told the editorial board Wednesday that Berger and Republicans have more important items on their mind. No Republican lawmaker said otherwise. A chapter in North Carolina history has ended. This is what progress looks like sometimes, not a splashy legislative vote or a, a landmark court decision, but a, a quiet, quiet acknowledgement that things are at least a little different now. Are you, are you getting a lot of pushback when it comes to these uh, non-discrimination ordinances? Or, or do you feel like this state of North Carolina has just moved beyond this as being an issue? Yeah, I think um, we there's always pushback. There's always opposition, which is exactly why we need these measures. If you've been at any of the um, at any of the city or town council meetings when these ordinances have passed, uh, we've had a flood of people um, protesting, and it's been horrific uh, lies about the LGBTQ plus community. I think uh, I hope North Carolina has moved on. Um, and you know, you said. Uh, if we were here in North Carolina, in reality, I wasn't in North Carolina. I'm from Arkansas originally. This was this was an embarrassment for North Carolina, not only nationally, but internationally. And I would hope um, that in the midst of a pandemic, a raging pandemic, when we have so many issues um, that the whole community is facing, that this wouldn't be the priority for the NCGA to prevent cities from protecting their citizens from discrimination. What about legal challenges? Uh, you, you expect anything from the North Carolina Values Coalition or any other groups? I mean, I think we can always expect the opposition to take some kind of action. I would hope not. I would think that um, the Family Values Coalition would have its work cut out for it with families that are experiencing hunger and poverty and eviction, um, that they would focus on other issues, but in reality, um, they are always um, standing in opposition um, and coming with hateful rhetoric. So I think it, there is a possibility in order to do that, they would have to prove harm. Uh, and I can't see how um, preventing discrimination causes harm uh, to another individual. And perhaps one of the biggest uh, barometers or metrics to see if, if we've progressed as a society here in North Carolina is what future legislation might look like. I, I must point out 18 states currently are trying to ban trans youth from sports, uh, 12 states trying to criminalize trans health care for youth. Um, do, do you expect similar measures to, to uh, be brought up here in North Carolina? I mean, we're seeing the same kind of rhetoric, actually, that at every single city council meeting that we've had where these ordinances have passed, they've talked about um, student athletes and all the things that cisgender women would purportedly lose if transgender women had non-discrimination protection. So these have been the talking points that, uh, that the NC Values Coalition has given uh, to its members and supporters. So 
I'm sure that she's lobbying some somewhere um, to try and push this legislation. But again, I hope um, that the North Carolina General Assembly uh, will not take up matters that only serve to further marginalize one of the most um, ostracized and mistreated groups uh, in in the U.S. population. Uh, do, do you feel um, gay, lesbian, trans folks have more reason to be optimistic today here in North Carolina than they did one year ago? Certainly, I think um, the national climate is beginning to shift. Um, for So for the past five years, even in the lead up to the previous administration, the really hateful uh, rhetoric that was on the uh, campaign and then coming from the White House really um, created a situation where we saw a rollback of almost every single protection that was available for trans and gender nonconforming folks in particular, and, and serious attacks on the rights of the LGBTQ, uh, LGBTQ community as well. So I think just having um, an affirming person in the White House who, who considers us human and with basic human rights in the country is already a marked improvement uh, for our lives. We still have a lot of work to do um, in order to build out these protections on the local level, the state level, and the federal level, but we have an opportunity to do so um, in this current climate, thank goodness. All right, Kendra Johnson, Director of Equality North Carolina. Kendra, thank you for coming on and talking to us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm always happy to talk about equality. You have Perfect. a great day. All right, Kendra, thanks. More Flashpoint coming up after this, the hidden toll of this pandemic. We're really desperate. Local business owner Craig Ray applied for a government loan to keep his business going. But when his request got stalled, Craig contacted the defenders and asked, where's the money? I know that after you contacted them, things moved pretty fast. Just glad we could help you. If you're asking where's the money and feeling financial pressure, the WCNC Charlotte Defenders are here to help. Email us at thedefenders at WCNC.com. We're there to get you answers to where's the money, only on WCNC Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint. A real side effect in this outbreak that people don't realize, a lot of folks losing their homes. In Charlotte, nearly a thousand evictions in just the last few months of 2020. All right, Doc, talk to me. A lot of times when we when we think of this pandemic now, one year into it, we, we don't necessarily think uh, of uh, public housing and, and how it's a crisis for some folks and pe people being able to stay in their homes. Uh, explain to me why this is such a big concern for a lot of folks. Yeah, so um, we know that having a safe, affordable, and stable home is essential to people's health and well-being. But uh, because of the economic recession, millions of people are at risk of losing their home, um, particularly Black and Latino folks all across the country. Um, it was estimated just recently that up to 40 million people all across the country um, are at risk of uh, eviction because they're behind uh, on rent. Uh, families are having to decide whether they pay rent or put food on the table. Um, so this is a crisis that people are facing in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, why do you think it's being overlooked by, by so many in, in, in my industry, in the media, by policymakers in, in both uh, DC and here, um, you know, in the States? Uh, wh why is it something that, that's not getting more attention? 
Well, I, I think people's uh, attention is uh, really focused on uh, the, the pandemic itself um, and how to uh, make sure now to, to get, get people the vaccine, uh, to keep uh, infection spread under control. But the, the second pandemic is, is really the impact that the economic recession is having. And we know that people's um, ability to pay for their basic needs has a huge impact on their health, and that is definitely the case with housing. Um, I think part of the problem is that um, policymakers and other leaders um, uh, oftentimes are not experiencing these um, financial hardships themselves, and they may not live in communities um, where people are um, experiencing the threat, threat of eviction. We know there is so much segregation by income and by race. Um, so oftentimes these problems aren't in front of folks that are making decisions. Um, we have seen some response from the federal government and that is encouraging, um, but we need to see more. Um, in the short term, um, we need to make sure that the eviction moratorium is uh, covers everybody and that it's easy to use. Right now, renters um, who are at risk of eviction need to fill out a form and submit it to their landlords to say, I can't pay rent um, because of uh, the recession and job loss. But most renters don't even know that they have to fill out the form um, or that they need to submit it um, to, to their landlords. Um, so we should remove that requirement and just make the moratorium automatic for any renter that needs it. Um, let's talk about the people who are, who are even past the point you're talking right now, the people who, who in some cases are homeless or are, are homeless, uh, you know, that are about to be homeless. Here in Charlotte, I'm sure the same thing there in Philadelphia, you have tent cities popping up all over the place, uh, people living in tents, um, and, and a lot of it happening just in the last year. What can we do about cases so severe? Uh, that that's a great question and let me just say in in mecklenburg county in the last four months there were nearly a thousand evictions carried out by the sheriff's office so you're right people are moving from stable homes um into homes of uh, family members and friends and sometimes onto the street so what we're seeing a lot of uh communities do is um be able to use federal and state dollars to get people who are street homeless either into shelters or even into hotels. I think people have probably seen and read a lot about that. Now the challenge is um, many of those folks have been um, in shelters or hotels for many, many months. Um, so uh, now communities need to focus on getting them into permanent and supportive housing. And we're seeing uh, many communities across the country doing that. They're leveraging dollars from state and federal government, and they're working with nonprofit housing partners to say, where can we move these folks into permanent and supportive housing? Because um, being in a safe, stable home, of course, is important in the midst of, midst of a pandemic, but we also know that um, it's, some, it's, it's a basic need um, that folks need uh, access to, pandemic or not. Well, we know leaders here in Charlotte have made it a top priority, even making a housing fund with $50 million to help try to address it. In general, what would you say would be your, your biggest um, pointers or advice to uh, policymakers, lawmakers, uh, who might not always understand the, the, the uh, depth of this problem? Yeah, so I already talked about um, closing loopholes in the eviction moratorium. I think paired with that is making sure there is enough rental assistance um, that's 
uh, that can get to landlords and renters quickly. So it's been made available by Congress, but now states and cities need to work really closely together to make sure those dollars get to the people that need it most, particularly um, small um, small landlords that may only own a couple properties and who themselves have been hit hard by by the pandemic. So that's short term. I'd say long term, we have a system where um, people who are struggling financially can get access to a voucher that pays for 30% of their rental costs. Right now in this country, only one in four people that qualify can actually get that voucher. We need to make sure that everybody who needs it can get it and that more housing moves into community ownership. Um, when housing is community owned rather than privately owned, um, folks are much less likely to be evicted um, during recessions. So those are some long-term changes that policymakers need to consider. And we hope uh, they are listening right now and, and watching this uh, because we know it's a dire problem and a problem that needs addressing here in Charlotte and, and across the country as well. All right, thanks for joining us and thanks for your, your expertise on such an important issue. Coming up next on Flashpoint, we're asking, where's the money? The second round of Paycheck Protection Program officially underway, making sure underserved communities get their fair share. Desperate. Local business owner Craig Ray applied for a government loan to keep his business going. But when his request got stalled, Craig contacted the defenders and asked, where's the money? I know that after you contacted them, things moved pretty fast. Just glad we could help you. If you're asking where's the money and feeling financial pressure, the WCNC Charlotte Defenders are here to help. Email us at thedefenders at WCNC.com. We're there to get you answers to where's the money, only on WCNC Charlotte. All right, folks, welcome back to Flashpoint, the second round of the Paycheck Protection Program officially underway. This time around, there are new rules in place to ensure minority-owned businesses are prioritized, including North Carolina's Latino-owned businesses that were largely left out of that first round. Our Savannah Levins is asking, where is the money? In the PPP's first round of the thousands of loans that went to North Carolina businesses, less than 100 went to Hispanic-owned businesses. The initial $523 billion Paycheck Protection Program was intended to help small businesses stay open and keep employees on payroll. But the rollout came under harsh criticism for systematically favoring big businesses. Many smaller banks said they weren't equipped to handle the program, and mom-and-pop shops had trouble navigating the legalese. The most important thing was like getting money for or survive. Eduardo Suarez was able to secure a loan to save his marketing firm, but says it took a lot of time, stress and sleepless nights. I remember April be totally, totally upset with everything. Of the 2026 small business owners and nonprofits in the Carolinas who identified their race on their PPP applications in the initial round, only 65 were Hispanic owned. That's about 3%. Actually, it was not surprising at all. Jose Alvarez is vice president of the nonprofit Prospera, which offers free counsel for Hispanic business owners. They may know how to do business in Latin America, but here, since it's a different system, and, and some of them, um, actually the majority of them in, in, in the Charlotte region and in North Carolina, for that matter, are first-generation uh, entrepreneurs. So they might not speak the language, so they might not necessarily know what's available to them, and much less during a pandemic. 
The second round of PPP funding that opened in 2021 sets aside $12 billion specifically for minority-owned businesses and prioritizes smaller lenders. Alvarez says during the initial program from March 1st through December 31st, they were only able to help four North Carolina Latino-owned businesses get approved for a PPP loan. Since the second revised round launched last month, they've already helped secure 27 loans. Just hand-holding and explaining to them this is what these different programs are. Uh, you might have a better shot at this and not at that one. So let me help you, you know, fill out all the forms and applications. So those are the issues that I think uh, why they didn't have as much access. It's because it's lack of understanding and, 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 and knowing that these, these resources are available to them. Alvarez encourages all small business owners to apply for any and all help available to ensure a strong and diverse economy is still standing on the other side of this crisis. For more information about PPP loans, how to apply, and how to find free assistance programs like Prospera, visit wcnc.com money. Reporting for WCNC Charlotte, I'm Savannah Levins. Back to you. Coming up after Flashpoint, why a guest here last week, a teacher that we had on this show, ended up having protesters outside his house the next day. Desperate. Local business owner Craig Ray applied for a government loan to keep his business going. But when his request got stalled, Craig contacted the defenders and asked, where's the money? I know that after you contacted them, things moved pretty fast. Just glad we could help you. If you're asking where's the money and feeling financial pressure, the WCNC Charlotte Defenders are here to help. Email us at thedefenders at WCNC.com. We're there to get you answers to where's the money only on WCNC Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Well, before we leave you last week, you might remember I was joined by a CMS uh, seventh grade English teacher, Justin Parmenter, uh, here on Flashpoint to discuss the room return to classroom and safety concerns that he had. Uh, and he was very open about the fact that he, that he was uh, concerned and that he thought teachers should get vaccinated. Well, just one day after his appearance on this program, Justin was greeted by a visitor outside his house that he documented on Twitter. I retweeted it. You, you can see a protester showed up outside his front door armed with a bullhorn and a sign. The protester, complete stranger to Justin, his family there, spent 40 minutes outside yelling on that bullhorn. Uh, of course, Justin questioned a lot of questioned people wondering if this is the right way to handle things. Uh, of course not. A teacher is a teacher and also a, a private citizen. Also, we should note teachers are not the ones making the decisions on, on when schools return. Uh, so make sure that uh, you, you sort of point your frustrations in, in the right area. Just something to keep in mind. By the way, come interact with me on Twitter and Facebook as well. If there's something you want us to talk about here on Flashpoint? Let us know. Maybe we'll talk about it. And then I will see you back here next weekend.